Good evening, church. Um, for tonight's reading, we'll be doing a dramatic reading of John chapter 20, um, which is Jesus' resurrection. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you had carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned towards him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. On the evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my fingers where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name.
a pretty, pretty amazing list of, of uh, world-changing moments, right? Let me add a few more historic moments that changed our world, our world on that list. Um, see if you can guess them. Here's one for you. Um, what historic moment took place at 12.56 p.m. Australian Eastern Time on the 21st of July, 1969? The moon landing. The moon landing, yeah. The moon landing. I, I, I don't know what that was like to be there at the time, though I'm sure if you were alive, you probably remember exactly the moment when that was beamed across the world and Neil Armstrong walked upon the surface of the moon, which is remarkable, isn't it? Because it's, it's 384,400 kilometers away. What a distance. What about another one? Um, on the 6th of August, 1991, something done by Tim Berners-Lee. Yes, I don't know who said that, but that was the birth of the internet. Uh, the internet was made public. The World Wide Web was made public that day. One more for you. Uh, 14th of November, 1986. Uh, 37 years ago. My birthday? <laughs> yes, that's true. Shouldn't be on the list. Hasn't, I haven't done anything enough, big enough yet to make the list. Still got time. Uh, but tonight, we are thinking about monumental moments, right? And there's the things that they need to be to, to kind of make the list. One is they have to be true. You can't put fictitious events on there. The, the killing of Voldemort, very important for us muggles, but nonetheless, didn't make my list fictitious. It has to be real, historic, and it has to be significant. That's why my birthday, sadly, did not make the list. And so tonight, as we think about moments that are both true and real and world-changing and significant, another Another event we should put on there is one of the Sundays in April in 33 AD when Jesus was resurrected from the dead. And see, for us Christians, and if you're visiting us tonight and you're checking out Christianity, what we believe is this actually happened. It's a historic event, so it's true, but also it's not just true, it's world-changing. It's that significant. The world would never be the same. And we're going to think about that as we look at three different groups of people who are changed forever on that day. And I'm hoping that you'll identify at least one of them, if not all three of them, and see how the resurrection can change your life. And if you want to follow along, you might have got a service sheet. If not, that's okay. They're, they're pretty memorable. Uh, the first is sad people filled with joy. And for this, we're looking at Mary. Mary Magdalene had been a follower of Jesus, and she'd loved him and followed his teaching and, and she'd followed him right to the cross. She was there and she witnessed the grisly crucifixion of Jesus as he was executed at the hands of the Romans. And that was on the Friday and, and now it's the Sunday. And she spent the weekend crushed under the weight and sadness of death. I don't know about you, but I, I, my guess is all of us are being marked and crushed a little bit by the weight of death. I'm not sure what it's looked like in your life. How's it affected you? I think the first time I really felt a sense of death wasn't for a death of a human. It was the death of our pet. Uh, we had driven our car, the family Tarago, uh, from Gympie right the way up to Cairns for Christmas with my grandmother up here. And we'd left our two dogs with a, a dear friend who was going to look after them for us. And I remember vividly pulling in at my great grandmother's backyard and her coming over quickly and kind of whispering frantically to my dad, who seemed very concerned. And then later that afternoon, we had a family meeting with all of us in the lounge room and were told that Buddy, our dog, had been run over by the people tasked to care for him. And that was right before Christmas. 
and uh, I'm still struggling with it as I think about it. Uh, I don't know, maybe death, uh, maybe death of a pet was the first thing that you experienced too. But of course, that's nothing compared to the death of a person. Uh, years later, I would travel up from Brisbane to Cairns for a different reason, not a holiday at Christmas time, but for the, the funeral of my grandfather on my mother's side. And that's, I think, when I grieved far more deeper than I'd ever had before. Not only would I not see him again, but also looking at my mother and my grandmother weeping and knowing the devastating hole left in their lives by his absence, um, I just, it struck home to me how sad it is when we get fronted, confronted by death. I wonder how death has affected you. Well, for, for Mary, it's had a huge impact. Uh, she's grieving Jesus as she, as she uh, wakes up that Sunday morning. Now, what we might do when we grieve is we might go to a, a, a tomb, a, graves, a gravestone, and we might bring roses, flowers, right? Well, in, at that time, you would, you would take spices and you would take it and embalm the body. And so that's what she does on the Sunday morning. She goes to the tomb to visit Jesus' body as an act of grief and, and process her, her grieving and sadness. But there's a problem. So we're in John, John's uh, biography of Jesus, his, his account, we're in chapter 20 and we're in the, the start of it, verse 1. Early the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. She came running to Simon Peter and the other disciples, the, one, the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they've put him. And the body's gone. Uh, that's pretty, that's, I imagine that would have been really confronting. You, you're processing all this grief, and when you finally get there to grieve uh, by the body, someone's taken it, stolen it, may robbed the grave or, or, or vindictively moved it. I remember reading on the 17th of August this year, uh, something similar to that actually happened here, up in North Queensland. Uh, there was a funeral for an Aboriginal elder, a Dumaji, and hundreds of people traveled hundreds of kilometers to be there at the graveside for his funeral. The only problem was, on the day of the funeral, they couldn't find his body. And so the hospital and the funeral home, they just they can't find the body. And so in a panic, with all these people gathering, they just buried an empty coffin. And then later told the family, oh, we should tell you something. We misplaced his body. And they were, they were upset. And here's a quote. They said, uh, it's just a feeling of anger and hopelessness and bewilderment. And one of the family quoted saying, it's not rocket science. There's the body, there's the coffin. Your job is to put the body in the coffin. I kind of agreed. Um, and they found the body later, and they dug up the coffin, put the body in. You know it, you get the point. But they were so hurt. In this moment of grief, they were so angry. And that's Mary's experience. She's so angry. The body's missing. Who is doing this? Making our lives more painful than they already are. She runs back, she tells the disciples, and she wanders back to the tomb, broken even more than before, and we pick up the story in verse 11. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying, and she wept. She bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and one the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? And they've taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they put him. At this she turned and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize it was Jesus. He asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who are you looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him, and I will get him. When I, when I first read this, especially when I was younger, I thought, you know, what's wrong with you, Mary? You get two angels and Jesus, 
and you don't even get it. I mean, I get it. You know, you're crying, your eyes are full of tears, and you don't recognize Jesus' silhouette, you don't expect him, but come on, I mean, how could you be so slow to believe? But now, having done a lot more funerals and seen a lot more grief, I get it. Grief is not gullible. Um, grief, grief takes a lot to be convinced. I think of a show, Bondi Rescue. Anyone seen Bondi Rescue? Everyone, right? It's kind of rite of passage in Australia. Um, Bondi Rescue, it's a life-saving show if you haven't seen it. And there's a classic storyline that would happen, it's a reality show, it's true, would, would be a mother would lose a child. And so the search would begin. She comes to the town and says, I've lost my child. And she's, he's four years old, he's wearing a, a blue rashie. And they say, that's okay, he'll turn up. And then an hour goes by, like, oh, okay, we better bring the jet skis in. So the jet skis come in. And then another hour later, they're like, all right, let's clear the water, look for the... The, the body or the person, they clear the water. Another hour goes by, now the mother's weeping, she's so sure the child's gone. They call the police in and they start searching the surrounding areas and putting out um, you know, calls on the radio. And then at five hours, they find the child sleeping in a slide in a park, six kilometers away, has wandered off. And they get on the radio and say, we've got your kid. And the mother doesn't rejoice. She, sees, she can't believe it. You know, she's still grieving. I can't bring my son to me. So they bring, you know, they bring her the child in the, on one of the quad bikes along the beach. And they say, see in the dock, you can see your son. She still doesn't rejoice. I got I to see him. And so they finally bring him. And it's not until he, she grabs him and she hugs him and says, come here, let me hold you. Does she finally stop grieving and believe? Her heart can relax and say, it's okay. I can finally believe this is true. You see, grief, deep grief, takes a lot to be convinced of good news. Here's Mary with deep grief, and she's convinced. It takes some convincing, but when Jesus says Mary and calls her name, she turns and she grabs a hold of him. She finally believes, and she needs to say, you know, don't hold on to me. I'm not, I'm not going to stay here forever. I'm going to go back to my father. And she's convinced, and she runs to the disciples now full of joy. And for me, that's a powerful eyewitness, someone who's gr- deeply grieving, basically right after a funeral, changes to pure joy. I mean, that doesn't happen unless something remarkable has taken place. I mean, that doesn't happen unless you're convinced the grief of the funeral has been reversed. And if it has, right, and if it's true, surely she is a taste of what we can all experience. If death is defeated, then the joy she experiences seeing Jesus resurrected is the joy that we could all have one day when we realize that funerals don't have to be the end. They're not permanent anymore. Life can go on after what seems like death. The hope of the resurrection. And if it's true, it's going to change the world. And so Mary's a very powerful witness, but she's not the only witness. So she's, she's someone who's sad and is brought to joy. Our, our second eyewitness is someone who's skeptical. Maybe that's more you. You're skeptical and you need convincing. And for that, we come to Thomas. Uh, I'm a millennial, so I'm burdened with FOMO, the fear of missing out. And it's the idea that, you know, you choose finally not to go to a party or an event, and it happens to be the greatest event, and you missed it, and now you have to just witness it on Instagram, and you can never partake in it. But sometimes you do miss out, and that's actually true. I think, for me, of the 2013 NBA championships in America, uh, I remember reading about this, I wasn't, I wasn't there, and Miami Heat were playing the, the Spurs, the Antonio Spurs, it was game five, Miami playing at home. They had to win to, to stay in the championship. 
and with 28 seconds left, they're five points down, and it's all but over. I mean, the, they're already, the officials are bringing out yellow tape to tape off the court and bring out the trophy and award it to the Spurs. And you can watch as hundreds of Miami fans start leaving. Mass exodus. They don't want to see their team lose. They want that first train home. So they're all leaving. And then one of the greatest comebacks in sporting history occurs. And what's regarded as one of the greatest basketball games in history happens. And they get the five points they need. And they go into overtime. And all the fans who realize it can't get back in the stadium. They lock the doors. Serves them right. And, and they go on to win in overtime and go on to win the championship. Now imagine if you're the one of those fans, you left grumpy, you got the train home, bitter, complaining, went to bed, feeling horrible, woke up, checked your Facebook feed, and lo and behold, you missed the greatest game of basketball of all time. You'd be disappointed. And fans were. I think that's nothing. That's nothing. The greatest sporting comeback of all time is nothing compared to what Thomas misses out on. Now Thomas probably was at the, the dinner, I think, but leaves early, and this is what happens. On the evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together, the doors were locked for the fear of Jewish leaders. Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not there with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We've seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand in his side, I will not believe. Jesus, you know, you leave your party early and what happens? Jesus, the resurrected Jesus turns up. You kind of miss out. And the next day, I imagine all the disciples couldn't wait to find Thomas and be like, you, you wouldn't believe it. You wouldn't believe what we saw last night. Jesus turned up. Would you believe them? Pick your, pick your 11 most trusted people in your life. Don't say it out loud. Don't offend people around you, but just imagine them. If they all said to you at the same time, we've seen the risen Jesus, would you believe them? Maybe, maybe not. Thomas says, no way. I don't believe you. Nope. Not going to believe you at all. Uh, he, he's actually really, he's really cynical and skeptical. I mean, he had seen Jesus walk on water, calm storms, heal the sick, raise Lazarus from the dead, turn water into wine, multiply food. He had heard Jesus say, I will die, and three days later I will rise. And he has 11 other people saying, we saw him. And he says, I don't believe it. In fact, I don't trust your testimony. I don't trust my eyes. I don't trust my ears. I'll only believe if I can put my fingers through his hands and stick my hand up into his chest cavity. When, when, I get to, when I experience that, then I'll believe. I mean, here's someone cynical and skeptical. You know, we often think that um, maybe, well, not really often, but some people might say, well, you know, 2,000 years ago, uh, people were gullible. They believe the story of the resurrection. I don't know why they would think that because, you know, the same evidence we have they had, 100% of people die, 100% of people stay dead. But, but people might say, well, you know, easily fooled. Not Thomas. He's pretty skeptical. I mean, he's more skeptical than most of us, I would say. And yet, what happens? A week later, this is verse 26, his disciples were at the house again, and Thomas was with them. No surprise, never missed a dinner party ever after that. Uh, Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach up. Put your, come on, put your hand in my, in my side, up, in, up into, my, into my wound. Stop doubting 
and belief. And Thomas looks and he says, my Lord and my God. And he's convinced. Jesus is not a ghost. He's not a vision. He's not a different person. He's not dead. This is Jesus, resurrected from the dead. And he says, my Lord and my God. Because he realizes that if Jesus has been raised from the dead, then there must be a God and Jesus must be God the Son. Otherwise, how could this happen? And so for me, the resurrection is powerful in a few ways. One, it shows us that death is defeated. Secondly, it shows me there is a God, and Jesus is God the Son. And, and I think Thomas is a powerful eyewitness. I mean, here's a man deeply skeptical, totally convinced. That'd be like Richard Dawkins or Ricky Gervais having spent hours publicly denying they could ever believe, coming out and saying, I'm converted. I'm, I'm signed up Christian. And so, here's a great testimony to the truth of the resurrection. So we have the sad made joyful, the skeptical believe, and finally the scared are made brave. We look at the disciples. Well, Jesus was executed under the Romans by the Jewish leaders. You probably already know that. What this meant was the disciples felt threatened. If they would kill Jesus, surely they would arrest and kill them. And so, even after um, the crucifixion's over, we find them hidden behind locked doors where they can't be found, and they're afraid. Twice, it says, they're hidden behind locked doors, but twice, Jesus appears, and twice, he says to them, peace be with you, have peace. And they do experience God's peace. Peace, because they know Jesus is risen, so he's king and ruling. They have peace, because they know that death is defeated, which means they're not scared of their own death. They have peace because God exists and he loves them. And so they're filled with this peace and instead of hiding behind locked doors, they go out and they proclaim the gospel bravely and boldly. And if you want to read that, you can read the historical account in the book of Acts and hear their preaching and the eyewitness accounts of what they did. And they were right to be scared in the sense of they did get persecuted. As soon as they started preaching boldly about Jesus and his resurrection... Uh, they did get persecuted. And it wasn't long before they had the first martyr when Stephen is stoned to death for preaching that Jesus is raised from the dead and is alive and seated in heaven. And yet, and yet the church would grow. A common complaint is that, well, you know, it's a made-up story. The, the, the resurrection is a lie. And yet the truth is all charismatic liars, no matter how um, committed they are to the lie, eventually confess under enough pressure. I think of my, my once hero, uh, Lance Armstrong. I was fully signed up with the bracelet and, and defended him. And yet, eventually, what does he say on Oprah? I did performance enhancing drugs almost my entire career. I lied about it. Or Bill Clinton, uh, lying about his affair in the White House. Or Bernie Madoff, saying he had a legitimate business, only eventually, under pressure, confessed that he had a $50 billion Ponzi scheme. And yet, the disciples not in front of you know, TV audience, but in front of executioners, would not change their tune. Why? Because it's true. And because they're not scared of death anymore. It's hard to stop a movement when their biggest hope is there's life after death. And so Peter goes on to do a lot of um, preaching and writes parts of the Bible, and then in 66 AD, he's crucified upside down and executed. 
Thomas, who was once doubting, goes on with boldness to the, into the east, in east of Syria. Uh, he goes to India and preaches, and then eventually he dies from being speared to death. Matthew, the tax collector, uh, the counts say that he was stabbed to death in Ethiopia. James ministered in Syria, and then Josephus, the historian, says he was stoned and then clubbed to death. Matthias replaces Judas. Uh, he preached before being burnt to death. And the list goes on. Almost all of them executed. And none of them confesses a lie because it's the truth. And it would go on like that. There are 70, estimated 70 million martyrs in the last two millennia. Isn't that incredible? And yet the church grows. Put it this way. If I imagine, if I close my eyes and imagine, what would the world look like if a man rose from the dead and defeated death, never to die again. I think to myself, well, it would probably be news that could never be contained. It would grow despite people's skepticism, and soon it would flood the world. It would be unstoppable, because such news is historic. That's kind of what happens. That's exactly what happens when I open my eyes and look at the world. At the launch of the church, a thousand Christians, approximately. Sociologists then say, by about 100 AD, that number has risen to 7,500 Christians in the Roman Empire. At 150 AD, there are an estimated 40,000 Christians in the Roman Empire. At 350 AD, there are 34 million Christians in the Roman Empire. And so if you're doing the maths, uh, Christianity went from 0.000015% of the population to over half the population in a matter of 300 years. Incredible. Thank you, Gene. I'm so, I'm so glad someone finds that remarkable like me. I even fact-checked it. It's, but that's what you expect if the resurrection is real. It's not what you expect if it's a lie. That's exactly what you expect if it's real. That this, this would change the world. That you couldn't stop it. That you could kill people and it would still grow. Right now, there's an estimated 2.38 billion people who are Christians. That's just, that's just world-changing. But it's also life-changing. It's kind of world-changing, not just in a global sense. It's world-changing for you and you and you and me. It changes our individual lives and worlds. And that's what we see. That's why this is written down. John 20, verse 30 and 31. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah. I mean, it's the saving king the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. Jesus comes to give life. This is written that you may know it and have life and believe. But you've got to believe. So obviously, you know, it was my birthday this week, and, and normally I get a present from my mother-in-law sent up. This year she gave me money, which depending on your personality is either the best gift or the worst gift. Up to, up to you. Uh, but normally what happens is she sends me a parcel and I always miss it. Even if I'm home, the post, postman misses me somehow. And so then what happens? You get a slip in the mail or an email or a text saying, you have a parcel. You must collect it from Irville Post Office. Imagine if I said, well, I do not believe you. This is a scam. I will not be fooled. What would happen? Well, the parcels, the gift is bought by someone who loves me. It's bought, it's posted, I don't have to buy it, I don't have to pay for it. But I do have to believe the message that it's there to be given and received. And if I said, I don't believe you, then let's say the gift was, you know, priceless. Maybe it's a Rolex watch, $5,000. I don't think that would be the case. But let's say it was. 
And I said, I don't, I don't care. I'm not going to be fooled by this elaborate scam. I would just go without. Now, how much worse would it be to say, I don't believe it, and find the gift was eternal life? But see, it works the same way. It's not automatic. Jesus has given this gift. He loves you. He gives it to you. You don't have to pay for it. It's already paid for. But you've got to receive it. And so you get the message. Jesus died. He's the Messiah. He's the Son of God. But you, and you can have life in his name. But you've got to believe the message. If you say, I don't believe it. It's a scam. It's a lie. It's not real. You will never receive it. And you will die with this gift wasted. And so John writes this gospel and people preach and people die for the gospel so that people may know there's life if you believe in Jesus. And it will change your life. I mean, are you sad? Are you grieving? Maybe you're grieving people who have died in your family. Maybe you're grieving your own body as you look at it and realize um, that you're aging or you're sick. You're not happy with your health or whatever it is. The resurrection will give you joy. This life is not all there is. There's life after death. There's a new body. There's a God who loves you. Or maybe you're skeptical. You have doubts. You have doubts that what will happen when you die. Doubts of whether God exists. Doubts of the resurrection. My, my challenge is go investigate it. I'm a Christian. I'm a pastor. And I, am, I encourage you to check it out. I, I'm not at all defensive. Investigate the resurrection. Because I'm sure you'll be convinced. I'm sure of it. The evidence is there. Or maybe you're scared. And you're scared about the unknowns of the future. You're scared about your own death. It's death of your parents maybe. You're scared about what happens after you die. Well, the good news of the resurrection is there's peace. You can have peace. Peace thinking about your own death because you've got eternal life waiting for you. Peace because you've got a relationship with God now. He's forgiven your sins. It's paid for by Jesus. I'm not sure which one of you. Scared, skeptical, or sad. But the resurrection has an answer for you. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you so much for, the, for this account by John that he records so carefully the events of that first, uh, that first Easter Sunday morning. And Father, we pray that for those in this room who haven't yet believed the good news of eternal life, they would believe tonight and that they would find life in your Son's name. For those who are sad, may they find joy in Christ. For those who are skeptical, may they be convinced by Christ. And for those who are scared, may they be emboldened and brave through Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen.